Hello, everyone, and welcome to 2023. This is our special year in review episode. And with me, I have Jamie Holland. Jamie, thank you for being here. Thank you, Zabna, for having me. Yes, I'm very excited. We're going to speak about all the exciting things that happened in 2022. And I think you're the perfect person to uh, do that with. Well, I hope so. <laughs> now, before we get started, please introduce yourself. Sure. Um, hi, I'm Jamie Holland, and I'm responsible for what we call Canada Industry Solutions, uh, which is an IP organization, so focused on uh, uh, primarily the software business, but we also have a a, uh, a strong business consulting practice within my group. Um, and and the areas that we focus on are uh, wealth, wealth management, uh, institutional investing, and, uh, and uh, insurance, and insurance based primarily in the data uh, uh, area. So, yeah. that, that is really interesting, that very comprehensive portfolio. Mm-hmm. So we'll get to some of those areas. Um, now, you mentioned wealth, so let's start yeah. there. Sure. So wealth management had a pretty big year in 2022. Very big uh, year, yeah. yeah. What mm-hmm. were some of the uh, things that occurred, some of the events? Uh, we really had a wonderful year, actually, in, in, in the wealth management space. Um, I think we crested the, uh, the the hill for our digital wealth platform uh, area and became sort of the market leader in that domain uh, during the year, which was fantastic. We had several wins with uh, some major players and, um, and uh, also solidified our position with some of our major accounts as well. So that's been very exciting for the team. Um, in uh, in funds, we had a very very big year. Um, we won a major contract with IGM, uh, and that brought a whole new product and a whole new team to to uh, CGI. And then uh, shortly thereafter, a couple months later, we did a very similar contract with CI, which also included operations. So we brought all of their team. Uh, uh, CGI, almost 270 people, so very major change for us. Um, and, uh, you know, in other areas of our business, the FX business is going strong. Our, uh, uh, our fund accounting business has been doing well and, and has a strong partner in, in RBC, which is one of the key players in the market. So, uh, really, um, uh, a very good year all around for the wealth business, for sure. Yes, sounds like a fantastic year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, CGI had a great year in wealth. Mm-hmm. What about the industry? What were some of the major milestones that occurred? Um, <clears throat> I mean, the industry is, has been undergoing a lot of change because I think, um, and, and maybe for the first time ever, it's becoming a real driver of uh, revenue and profit for, for major financial institutions. And they see the shift to asset management, wealth management as a key part of their strategy. Um, and because of that, there's a lot of investment going on in the wealth space. So we see uh, major transformation programs being kicked off by most uh, wealth providers. So it's not uh, it's not one or two, it's all. And, uh, and that means uh, great business for us as well because uh, they need help from firms that have cheap knowledge in the domain. And, and uh, you know we're the we're the largest player in that space in Canada. So so um, so it's a big deal for us. It's it's been uh, it's been really awesome in terms of uh, the the amount of business that's come our way. And for the industry, I think it's a nice change because there's a recognition that they have to be digital 
that the digital transformation applies to the wealth business as well. Uh, and so uh, we're seeing a major investment in, in, that, in that area. And, and that major investment is not coming from the bottom up, it's coming from the top down, so it's coming from the advisors, from the clients. And so it's a real, it's a real organic change for, for, for them, so. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned all of CGI's wins, mm-hmm. um, and obviously the, for, uh, the industry has been going through this digitization for the yeah. past several years, and yeah. COVID definitely accelerated things, particularly mm-hmm. with onboarding. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the areas where CGI's products are excelling that's allowing us to have all these wins? Um, <clears throat> you know, we made a decision uh, years ago to invest in the idea of platform. And so, um, you know, we, we actually have a platform team that underpins all of our IP. And that platform team uh, builds a set of digital capabilities that can be used effectively across all of our different products. Um, that, to me, is a key uh, uh, reason why we've been so successful. Without that, I think, uh, you know, we would have multiple different Strategic directions and different technology platforms, and because uh, these domains are big, it's not like it's a small portfolio versus funds. I mean, they're huge domains in and of themselves, uh, and um, and so having that digital platform has really been a very important aspect of that. And so when I think of why, I think of the concept of platform. Um, I think uh, the industry has been looking for and needs uh, platformization. Um, and, and you know, to me, that's really about having strong uh, data capabilities across the back, middle, and front office that's integrated. Um, <clears throat> and that's what the digital transformation is all about. Onboarding is a great part of that. And it's, you know, it's one of the highest touch points for a client. It's the most important touch point, really, because it's the... It's the point where you, you know, the advisor and the client meet and 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 make their their most important uh, connection and decisions. Um, but it's just the first touch point. There's touch points every month for the rest of the time that the, that an advisor has that client, and that's you know it could be twenty, thirty years, right? So having that uh, become digital, having the integration digital, and having that platform to underpin it is critical. I think this is a lot of what the digital transformation is all about. And it's funny because I think some of the, the firms that we deal with, um, our clients, they don't, they don't, they, they can't articulate what's wrong. Um, and so they go after different pieces of the puzzle. But fundamentally what's wrong is they don't have a platform that allows them to uh, serve all of their clients all the segments of clients that they have from a single place. And for us, that's been what's uh, uh, been the generator of our growth. So, I completely agree with that. Uh, on the point of platformization, um, I mean, the way we, we, view, uh, we view platformization on our team in consulting is that platformization, it's really, it's not just one piece of technology. It's connective tissue that connects the different technologies together. Mm-hmm. Um, so even for a front office advisor, they, they usually have their own different software for 
the investment, the onboarding, the financial planning, and usually those tools don't speak to each other, which makes their job a lot more difficult because they may have a good information on one side and then they have to manually uh, pass it on to another application. Mm-hmm. Instead of it, they're just being in this free flow of information, this connection existing between these different applications. Um, so I can definitely see why ha- investing in an approach that kind of synchronizes everything and gives it one home instead of just, you know, being siloed out uh, is a key for success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I think you're right. I think uh, most of the advisors have, and, you know, a lot of the advisor practices choose their own tools um, as well. So, you know, there's bits and bytes all over there. Um and it's hard for you to get uh, a real integrated experience from that. Um, and I think this is what the firms are tackling. And this is what the advisors are asking for. I mean, we do our advisor survey. And what we hear from the advisors are some fairly straightforward things. We're open to change. We need digital, right? And, and I think the third thing is we want to have integrated data that allows us to see what's going on with our clients at all times. Um, and, 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 and that hasn't been their experience to date. Their experience has been, I have one tool for this thing, I have another tool for that thing, and they don't talk to each other, and I have to replicate all the information. Um, and I think the other part of that is they've been focused on uh, delivering financial plans that are uh, totally disconnected, in fact, paper-based, uh, from, from the experience. So there's no integration, there's no end-to-end uh, uh, integration for, for, for the, the relationship between the advisor, the clients, and, and ultimately the firm. And this is why platformization is so important. It's really about managing the data in the middle of that equation. And you, know, you might think of it as a middle office application in a way because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the investor book of record, but it's tied into everything. It's how they onboard it's how they get statements. It's how they get performance reports. It's how they get, uh, you know, changes to their investment framework, their, their rebalancing of their portfolios. All of that has to be hanging off of one chassis uh, for it to work properly. And that's the big change we're seeing as well. A real focus on that. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that is a positive change. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can say coming from the industry myself, it wasn't a very pleasant experience having to go to 10 different places to get 10 different things. Right. Um, it, and that's no way to achieve skill either because as we saw in our Voice of the Advisor survey, advisors are offering so much more to their clients today because client expectations are higher and they're partially being set by players outside of the wealth industry. So, you know, Amazon is a good example. They're used to Amazon, you know, giving them what they want before they even know they want it. And so they're like, well, if Amazon can predict this, why can't my financial advisor where, you know, a very important part of my life, my financial assets reside? Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's been a, that's definitely been a change that they've had to accommodate and try to keep up with and having an approach that makes their lives easier and helps them streamline is for sure going to uh, be a positive change for everyone. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's it's funny because you know, for most of us, the tools that we have at home are better than the ones that we have at our office, right? And 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 it's true even on our phone, right? So, and we're so used to that. 
Uh, you, you know, Uber is obviously the easy example of that, right? It's a simple single screen application that does so much for us. Um, and we don't have that experience at work with, and especially for advisors, they definitely don't have it. Uh, uh, so it's, a, it's, it, you know, this is what they're asking for. They want to have a simplified way of managing their relationships with their clients and making sure they're delivering great value. And, and it's regardless of what that value proposition is. You know, whether they be a advisor who views themselves as an investment manager or an advisor who views themselves as a planner or an advisor who views themselves as a life coach. Regardless of how they view themselves, they want to have the right tools to deliver that value proposition. And right now they don't. So uh, so, so that, that, is, uh, that is the big change that's happening and that's the big focus that these firms have now. And it's about time. You know, it's it, uh, it's 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 been a while, um, and I think you know now the firms are starting to see that the that the the issue is really in the, in the data and the middle layer uh, that that supports all of this capability, plus all the experiences themselves. And um, you think about the client experience as, as critical, but you also have to think about the advisor experience, um, and uh, and the middle office experience as critical to that whole equation. Uh, so a lot of work being done to, to, to make those changes, and of course we're at the forefront of that, uh, which is exciting. Uh, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's what makes us proud with what we're accomplishing and achieving for the industry. It's really helping the industry move forward, so it's exciting. Yeah, I mean, uh, and that middle office piece is usually, you know, forgotten sometimes mm -hmm. just because it's not, the client's not seeing it, the advisor's not seeing it. Um, I, I know from my time in the industry, the middle office, like, we just knew that we sent our requests and they went somewhere and they got done. It's not really an area that has much visibility. Um, now, if we do go sort of shift back to the client and, and advisor for a second, um, another big shift that we saw w with our voice of the advisor survey besides offering more services was that advisors were trying to provide you know uh, plans and like more comprehensive uh, sort of interactions and meaningful interactions really to their clients. One of the ways they were trying to achieve that was through financial planning. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned earlier, that can be difficult because sometimes you have 47 pages that you spend six months building and then they get looked at once and they're forgotten. Um, so there has been a shift now where uh, firms are trying to invest more into financial planning, get better tools. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious... It does uh, what's CGI seeing? Like, are we doing anything in that space, or do you see anything interesting happening within the industry overall when it comes to financial planning? Yeah, oh, it's a great question. You know, um, you know, I'd say you're right. Traditionally, financial planning has been um, has been I mean, a very powerful set of tools, by the way, but run by financial planners. You had to have separate meetings for them. Uh, you had to bring a uh, whole host of data, which might have been difficult to find. Um, and, you know, in the end, uh, there were a lot of people who just didn't want to go through the hassle of doing it. And then when it was done, it became a paper document that came to you, and that paper document kind of just sat in the desk somewhere, you know. So very valuable for the first month, and then <clears throat> not so valuable uh, going forward. Now, 
when I say very valuable, I mean valuable in the context of uh, you know your your retirement plan. You know, uh, if you're planning to leave a legacy, doing trust for your kids, all of these things, very very valuable. Um, so 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 how do you make that uh, something that's a living document? I think is the question. And that's really where the, I think the focus shifted to in financial planning, which is how do you make that an ongoing experience, something that uh, actually flows, uh, you know, uh, and, and is a, a, a key part of the relationship between the advisor and the client as opposed to between the financial planner the advisor sent the client to and the client, right? So, so it's, it's, you know, in a sense it's simplifying, but it's also still a very um, powerful set of tools that allow the client to make um, uh, very good decisions about their life. Uh, and, and, you know, these are tax decisions, insurance decisions, estate decisions, so on and so forth, what to do with my corporate versus personal accounts and so on and so forth. So, so there's a lot of, uh, a lot of capability there. Um, and so for us, <clears throat> we're looking at that and thinking about that living document, that living set of tools, and how do we deliver that uh, and make it part of the advisor experience with the client. Um, we've we've been investing with one of our clients uh, in, in building a set of tools, and we'll be launching that uh, more formally uh, in, in, uh, in the coming months. Um, <clears throat> so that might be good for next year's retrospective. Um, uh, um, more so than this year's, but uh, that set of tools already has two or three years of build behind it, so it's not going to come out of the gate as new. It's going to come out of the gate as in production uh, and and a powerful set of tools that allow it to happen. And I think that puts us at the forefront of the industry. Uh, so very excited about financial planning and what that means for us, but um, probably uh, more detail to come uh, in, in, the, in the next few sessions. Yeah. That sounds very exciting. Mm -hmm. And to your point, financial planning is a very powerful area. And, you know, instead, again, instead of having that 50 page paper document now, it's trying to deliver things in chunks. So let's not talk about your retirement, which might be like 40 or 50 years down the road. Let's talk about the vehicle that you want to purchase in five years or the mm. home that you may want to buy. Um, and that is definitely a great way to keep clients engaged. Uh, with their, uh, obviously, their accounts, but also it helps build loyalty, right? Like there's a stickiness that's, that gets created um, and which has become very important for advisors because the last thing they want is attrition. They don't want clients to jump ship because some other firm is offering some newer, fancier tools. So, yeah. you know, building that relationship, having that humane touch to it's very important. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, traditionally, the, the high-end financial advisory practices have avoided clients who didn't have enough money. Uh, <laughs> and so, so, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's kind of a shift that we're seeing, which is how do we capture the, the, the future affluent um, early in their lives and, and help them with their goals through life, um, which, which uh, you know, ultimately will come to uh, retirement and legacy, which are like, you know, the sort of end goals for most people. Um, <clears throat> so it's an interesting... Uh, it's an interesting challenge that, that, that it poses as well because the reason why advisors tended to avoid people who didn't have 
uh, you know, a million dollars or more to invest was because it was expensive to support them and, uh, and there wasn't enough margin in it. And so this is part of platformization, I think, as well. So it's not just about financial plans. It's about having all the underlying tools um, and, and, and the efficiency that those underlying tools bring and allow you to make profit even with a client who doesn't have uh, you know, $250,000 or $100,000 for that matter, knowing that those clients at some point in their lives are going to be affluent and, and likely to have, uh, uh, you know, be a major part of your practice. So it's an interesting uh, uh, difference in, 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 uh, and, and change in how the advisory practices are thinking about people in general. Segments. Right. Well, and a big part of that, of course, is that you have baby boomers who are mm-hmm. sitting on so much wealth and they're going to pass it on to the next generation. So it's, you know, uh, Hopefully. <laughs> yes, let's hope so. <laughs> but uh, it's so you can't really just wait for these young clients now to actually come into that money and then say, okay, I'm going to pursue you after you have, you know, X, Y net worth. You have for to sure. go after them a bit earlier on and create that relationship so that they trust you and they're willing to, you know, um, ask for your assistant and have you in that process when they actually do inherit. Uh, Because that is one of the big trends in wealth management is, again, capturing these younger cohorts because you know that there's this generational shift that's coming. Yeah. I don't remember the exact stats, but it's it's, it's, it's something like 80% of, uh, of transferred wealth leaves the practice. So, uh, so you think of that number, you know, 80% of the people who are inheriting the wealth from your, your best clients are moving on. Um, so, so yeah, absolutely. Having a, a strategy to maintain those clients is critical. Um, and I think that's actually part of the big time, part of the equation. Um, how do you, how do you attract and keep those clients? I mean, we set up accounts for, uh, I know, for my part, I've set up accounts for my kids, but whether or not they'll actually stay with my advisor at some point in the future is a is a big question mark. Um, and I think that's uh, that's the experience that's happening across the board. Um, the way to manage that again is to uh, find a way to be able to deliver service to those clients that's meaningful for them, um, and do it in a cost effective way, efficient way that allows you to make money still. Um, and that's been, you know, that's been a big part of what we've been thinking about in terms of what we deliver to the market. Right. And I mean, besides the tools, another. Can we rephrase this answer and wait for the ambulance to go? The last part of the. Oh, oh yeah. Because the ambulance is going to be a problem. You got a big ambulance noise, sure. <laughs> oh, we're good now. So we can uh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah. You can start over the question, so if you want. Sure. So, um, I mean, a big trend in wealth is, of course, the transfer to the next generation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, advisors need to figure out how to, you know, maintain, retain, and attract these younger cohorts because, again, they are. It's it's not good enough to say I'm going to wait for them to come into this money and then I'll pursue them. You have to build these relationships much sooner so that they trust you and they're willing to have you be a part of that process when it comes to their uh, wealth plan. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think the stat is that eighty percent of uh, of uh, of 
uh, transferred wealth to to the next generation is uh, is a uh, trits or leaves the practice. So, very major loss, and that's been a big focus for uh, you know for most advisory practices is how do they retain that wealth? And part of the challenge, of course, is what's important for uh, the older generation is not necessarily what's important for the younger generation. So, so th- I mean, I think this is where financial planning has has uh, become a much more valuable tool is because it can focus on goals, which has become a sort of central point of, of financial plans. And those goals don't have to be retirement or legacy. They can be, um, as you said, purchasing a car or... or uh, or a house, uh, or going on trips, uh, whatever the case may be, as as that set of goals. And you know, the key about the platform that, that that we deliver to the market is that it allows you to efficiently deliver that service, so you can do it in a way that makes money as well. Um, and that's not been the case in the past. You know, uh, for uh, lower net worth clients, uh, it's been very difficult for a firm to make money at them. Um, and for that reason, the advisory practices have tended to avoid them. Um, but the challenge is that you know, those lower net worth people become the higher net worth people over time. Uh, so so you know, it's, it's capturing them when they're, uh, you know, when, they're, when they're up and coming. That's what's important, I think, for those practices as well. So that point of generational wealth t- transfer or even just capturing, uh, capturing uh, new clients who are leaving other practices uh, is important to to the growth of advisor, uh, the advisor business. So. That that makes sense, and part of it is obviously advisors being able to again have these meaningful interactions with this younger cohort, because you do have advisors who you know are older, and mm-hmm. so they may they may be considered a bit out of touch uh, with the younger generations. But I've uh, from my own experience, this is a bit of anecdotal, but I've been in touch with some of the folks that I know in the industry, and it's been interesting to see the different approaches that different teams are taking to have these meaningful engagements with the younger cohort. Mm-hmm. Um, ESG has been a pretty big driver just because the younger generation tends to um, be more environmentally and socially um, sound. That it's just something that they care more about. They want to invest in it, uh, and they really want to engage on engage on topics that are meaningful to them. So seeing this shift has been interesting. And you know, when we speak about ESG, I recently saw a uh, I believe it was a Bloomberg intelligence report that predicted there'll be over fifty three trillion USD in assets in ESG by 2025, mm-hmm. which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> ESG is a funny thing because I think most firms are trying very hard to come off as ESG-friendly yes. uh, uh, firms, right? So, and you, and you look at, uh, you know, even oil producers are positioning themselves as sustainable, uh, which is, you know, hard to, hard to reconcile in some ways. <laughs> um, but but um, it's certainly part of the, the, you know, the lexicon of the day. Um, you know, I think the other part of that is the performance also matters, right? So it's both. Uh, it's both being social and performance uh, and, and delivering on the performance that, that most uh, people are looking for. 
the younger cohort especially is focused on this, and you're absolutely right. I think you'll see much more money going into uh, sustainable uh, funds, um, sustainable uh, firms as well. And so um, that that you know that that's part of uh, what we have to prepare ourselves for as an industry. I think is that that's a big part of who we're going to be and and how we're going to operate. Um, you know, for us, we've we've looked uh, you know in two ways at this. I mean, first off, we have a consulting practice that focuses on ESG. So our consulting team is helping firms think about how do they um, primarily how do they measure their activities so that they can demonstrate that they are uh, ESG an ESG uh, compliant uh, firm and and uh, and then of course from a from a platform perspective we focused on how do we track uh, the securities uh, appropriately so that we can uh, especially in the malls business so in the managed account business uh, how we how we can demonstrate that we're supporting the Wishes of clients, and uh, and delivering an ESG friendly uh, set of set of uh, investment vehicles. So, so yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a massive uh, uh, focus area. I think, and we're going to see a lot of growth. Um, I think you're right. I think it's going to continue to grow uh, because it is more and more important to. I think all generations, younger generation for sure, but I think the older generations are now very much. Align with that uh, thinking and and uh, and also investing in the same way. Absolutely. And uh, our last episode of Wealth Chat was all about ESG, and we spoke a bit about greenwashing. So that mm-hmm. idea of oil companies being ESG, to your point, can't be diffi- difficult to reconcile with. But yeah. you know, they. Uh, I will say that I've noticed across the industries, all the players have been trying to make an effort to change uh, and to do better, which which is nice. It's comforting mm-hmm. to know that everyone really is in this together because we do have industries that come together, uh, including the oil and mining sectors as well, that are trying to have better and more improved processes so that they have less of a carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, can't avoid all of it, but at least it's a step in the right direction. Um, yeah. Now, I wanted to hear a bit more about uh, CGI and ESG. So we, of course, have the ESG consulting practice, uh, and we had Matt speak about that last episode as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of tooling or product, uh, is that something that CGI is investing in? Yeah, very much so. So you know, we're looking at, uh, again, how we track um, the, the compliance, the ESG compliance of the underlying assets. And you know, in, in a way that has to that has to line up in the security master uh, of the product. So, so we have to be able to say uh, what's sustainable first off, uh, or what's ESG compliant, and then okay, how do we track it on an ongoing basis and make sure that um, the the, uh, the you know there's a set of constraints that are set up for the account so that a client can make a, a selection for sustainable. Um, you know, that's handled typically in a very simple way these days, um, which is, you know, you, you have a set of ETFs that are sustainable ETFs or a set of funds that are sustainable funds, and those become the basis of a portfolio for a client. But I think going forward, we'll see that in the managed account space especially, uh, you'll have to track um, those securities much more diligently than we have in the past. 
And so for us, we're just making sure that the platform is capable of doing that. It's up to our clients to actually implement it and 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 use it appropriately. So, so uh, yeah, we're we're definitely setting ourselves up for that, and we're supporting our clients as they as they move in that direction. So. Yeah, that that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, all we can do is have the tooling available to them and right. uh, hope that uh, it gets utilized appropriately. Now, you mentioned compliance, and one of the big things that happened in uh, the industry in 2022 was the amalgamation of IROC and MFDA from a regulatory mm-hmm. standpoint. So, mm-hmm. you know, for the past decade, maybe even longer, every couple of years, we would hear some chatter about a merger between IROC and MFDA, and then it would go away. Um, this time, it didn't, and it's actually happening. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on this, and what do you feel are some of the implications yeah, no, I, I think it's uh, a smart move, a fantastic move. Uh, you know, it, it's it's always been odd to me that we had two regulatory bodies that uh, did very similar things, um, and and certainly, yeah, you're right. We've been talking about this for twenty years, so it's great that they finally come together. Um, you know, what does it mean? Uh, you know, I, I'd say um, I'm not sure it means a lot in the short term, and it seems to me that the MFDA firms are going to continue to um, uh, sell what they sell, which is typically funds and and some ETFs now, as well. And so it broadens their their product set a little bit. Um, but that's going to shift over time, and we'll see. I think over the next several years, um, uh, you know, a broadening of capabilities. So the traditional MFDA firms will broaden the set of uh, of things they offer, and probably get more heavily into the managed account space. Um, uh, I doubt they're going to get into uh, commission-based trading, though. And I just don't think it's something that, that would be a focus for those firms. Um, and then the other side, I think, for the uh, for for the securities firms that have everything, they've been shifting to a fee-based business anyways um, and driving towards the sort of managed account-based uh, 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 set of portfolios for the clients. So I think that's going to just continue. Uh, I, I don't see it changing. Uh, for them. Um, I think overall, uh, maybe we'll see a few more mergers than we have in the past as well um, uh, because of that change. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's a very good thing for the industry. And um, from our perspective, it's, you know, we can support both and, and, and we do. And, and so, uh, uh, you know, not, not a major change that has an, a lot of implications for the way we operate. Yeah. yeah. Well, I imagine there's probably more enhanced consumer protections now and uh, I've mm-hmm. I, I did read something that was speaking about the merger and what it means for consumers and the idea was that you now have one body that you can go to instead of two and so everything will be a bit more streamlined sure. they'll be quicker to address any grievances uh, and it won't really be you know jumping back and forth between the two uh, which I think would be helpful um, you mentioned fee-based and I think that's another trend that has been happening in wealth management for the past several years mm-hmm. um, and for the right reasons. It And we, we spoke about some of the reasons for why it's happening. You know, financial planning is a good example. Advisors are doing so much more than just trading. They are providing all these additional services. And so how do they get compensated? Um, and fee-based where they're charging uh, 
one of the schemes anyways is where you charge for a percentage on the book. Mm-hmm. That that seems to be a step in the right direction in terms of compensating advisors appropriately for all the work that they are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would say, do you, are, have you seen or do you predict there will be some major shifts in in fee-based in terms of how fees are charged? We've, For instance, we've seen ideas of subscription being floated around. Um, yeah. we, or just tiered. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's lots of different models. In the end, it's you know, it's all a proxy for you know cost and margin uh, for the for the firms that deliver the services to their clients. If I think about um, the shift for fee based, uh, you know, and and the reasons for it are primarily about delivering the best service to the clients. I think, um, and that's the advisor's perspective on it, um, and. You know, doing that in a way that's profitable as well, uh, and and fee based works uh, from that perspective. Uh, you know, the focus uh, at that point becomes how do I uh, support my client and grow in their assets as quickly as possible. Obviously, they make more money as the assets grow, so um, there's a you know incentive for for the advisor and the client are fully aligned at that point, uh, which I think is high value. So uh, to me, that's that's. Uh, that's an important uh, part of that shift. Um, you know, the, the the challenge with the transactional business uh, was that it, you know it had a set of risks uh, involved in it, and you know there were a lot of uh, compliance issues that, that that were floated because of that. And it is uh, you know you're, you're able to be a bit tighter on compliance in the fee fee managed business. So from a firm perspective, it's better as well. Um, it's it's more compliant. It's uh, you know it's it's it aligns the interests of the advisor and the client, and uh, and uh, you know it, it uh, delivers the most value in terms of where the fee structures are going. Are they going to a subscription? Perhaps. I mean, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if a firm came up with that idea um, because there's always some way of grabbing more assets and, and growing your business. Um, but generally speaking, I would say it's probably going to stay as a percentage. Um, of of the assets under management, um, and you see that even in the robos, which are you know forty basis points, up to say one hundred and fifty basis points in, in an advisory practice, and 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 you know there's there's blends in between. Um, you know that is that you know, that's kind of the range that is is generally accepted as the important range to deliver value and uh, service and margin uh, to the clients. So. Uh, in the fee-based business, so I, you know, I suspect that'll stay, um, and we'll see that we'll see that remaining. You know, there's always a, a new challenge to that, uh, and you know, I don't want to predict the future because <laughs> you know it's hard to predict, right? So, um, but but that's that's my take on it. Yeah, there's there's a lot of possibilities for the future. Sure. I I do feel that the model the fee models conversation is interesting because uh, it's. There are, there are fierce debates about it, and they've been had for a while now. And uh, there are like, smaller players that have introduced a subscription, but again, they're they're small, and they mainly deal with uh, financial planning. But it's what you would call light financial planning, so financial planning for the moment mm-hmm. or for just the short term. Um, so it'll, it'll be interesting to see how it, it all shifts and actually finally settles, because I feel that now that firms are going through this digital transformation, that there's all these changes happening. Um, 
with their models, but also with regulations, that it's it's a good time for them to create some good foundations for the future of yeah. how they want their practices to be. Yeah, I think I think um, you know the concept of investment management as the core part of your practice is something that's sort of a thing of the past, you know, because. Uh, the view is that investment management has a has a value, and it's well known in the industry. It's what the robos offer forty yeah. basis points, right? Uh, so, so from that point on, it's about advice and coaching, and you know, financial planning, the other aspects of a service that an advisor can bring to bear. And I think for you know, for the for the uh, mass affluent and the high net worth alike. Um, you know, it's it, it's it's challenging to navigate the markets, and it's good to have someone who knows what they're doing on your side and that you can talk to about it. Um, it's tough to do it from a robo. Uh, not that robo's wrong, but it's good for some people, but it's not good for most people. Most people need advice, need coaching um, to make the right decisions, and the right decisions happen at. Uh, at points in time, when the market goes down, when the market goes up, uh, that's when people tend to make the big mistakes, and that's when making the right choices makes the biggest difference as well. So, I think you know the, the role of an advisor and advisory practices are not going to change. I think they're, they're, people need that help, um, and uh, yes, the pricing models might get adjusted, but in the end, it's going to be the same uh, ultimate pricing. And doing a simplified model for a subscription price of a financial plan, is that the best answer for uh, most people? Probably not. Uh, for some people it is, though. The people who have um, probably a, a, a clearer and sophisticated view of the markets and is, are able to make those choices themselves, right? So. Yeah. But robo tends to be for, again, those smaller, more targeted strategies. Um, but True. to your point, uh, advice is essential and it's sort of the backbone of the uh, wealth industry, yeah. financial uh, management. Um, and really, you see the value of that during volatile times because during good times, during bull markets, everyone's happy and you can essentially throw a dart uh, just as it was a few quarters ago and you'll hit yeah. green somewhere. But it's when things take a downward trend that you need someone in your corner who's level-headed, who understands and who's able to guide you appropriately. Um, so I definitely agree with that. Now, um I did want to touch a bit on RegTech as well, because we've been speaking about yep. compliance. Yep. Um, and that's been a very big area and an area that continues to grow, um, mostly because there isn't really a choice there. You you have to comply. So what are your thoughts on RegTech and what's happening there? Yeah, so uh, you know, I, I'd say that there's... Um you know, different aspects of this. You know, when you're talking about wealth management, it's 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 been about um, you know having the right tools to support client reforms uh, and and the, and the regulations around uh, knowing your client, knowing your your product, um, and you know the the I think the most firms have been quite successful in setting up the right tooling for that, and that those tools and that work has actually improved. The value that they deliver to the clients, and maybe help them to grow their business as well. Um, and and you know that probably wasn't what they thought when they saw another regulation coming at them. Like, oh my goodness, I have to prepare for this thing. Uh, so, I mean, in a way, regtech is becoming an important part of the business because um, that compliance actually helps you to build and grow your business in some ways. 
um, you know, for the markets, I think, uh, uh, you know, for the for the sort of sell side, if you will, um, I think reg tech is, uh, you know, it's, it's something that we're looking at very carefully and, and, and investing in right now. Um, I think that there is a lot of regulation and a lot of different regulators that are gathering the same data um, in different formats. And so there's a huge opportunity for us to deliver a service to our clients to help them um, gather that data once and deliver it to multiple provide multiple regulators uh, at, at the same time. So, um, and you can especially see that in in you know in derivatives, in some of the some of the more complex uh, uh, type of of trading activity. Uh, all the different regulators uh, involved in that process it makes it challenging to operate as a firm. So, simplifying that is a big opportunity, I think. And uh, you know, some firms have done it really well. Some firms not so well. All are investing in making that happen. I think um, so. Something we're looking at very carefully. That's really fascinating. So, really taking this data that. That's probably in different forms to meet the needs of these different regulators, but essentially the same data, same and, data. S- and structuring it so that it could be applied to just whoever needs it. Yep. That, that, I mean, that sounds like a winning solution right there if, if it can be built. Sure does, isn't it? <laughs> it yeah. does. Yeah, no, I, I think for, for clients, they, they, they really see the opportunity as well. Um, it's... Um, you know, cause, cause, and it's very obvious that it's the same data going to different different players and different formats. So, um, you know, what what better thing can you do than to simplify that? And it also allows you to simplify the gathering of that data and and the comfort level uh, for the risk organ- the risk group inside the organization as well. And I think that's an important part of uh, uh, of operating these businesses because we've seen what's happened when uh, some of those. Uh, re- regulatory bodies are not uh, conformed with, and we see some massive fines, hundreds of millions of dollar fines uh, for 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 certain financial institutions. Uh, hasn't happened so much in Canada. Uh, you know, we've seen a few small smaller fines, not big big ones, but we've seen the very large ones for uh, for some of the European banks, uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, that's. Uh it's, it's really interesting. And uh, again, I feel like when it comes to compliance and regulations, um, there's a, a bit of a negative view because it's always about red tape and restrictions. But there, it, seem, it seems like there's a lot of in, room for innovation as well um, and room for growth and to do some really exciting things. Sure. Um, something that I was really fascinated by, I was on a webinar a while ago where they were speaking about CFR. Uh, and one of the panelists had mentioned that their firm was working on um, having AI and ML to help with client-focused reforms, where now that there's KYC and KYP, there, there's a lot of information for client for advisors to know and pass on to their clients. So their idea was to use AI to assist advisors in picking out the information that they had to know, that they needed to disclose. Mm-hmm. So you may, for instance, have like a 50-page document and you really need to know three pages worth of information from it and the AI would go in there. It would highlight the information that you actually need to know, gather it all and bring it to you so that you had the correct disclosures and you're able to provide it to your client. Uh, and it's it's very streamlined, provides a lot of scale because mm-hmm. um, now regardless, now you 
the when I think about it, the advisor has the ability to actually explore more options because sure. you know their life has been made easier by this uh, tool that's assisting them in siphoning off the information that they need instead of them having to go and read you know fifty pages of disclosure for each asset that they might be interested in. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I think IA is going to become more and more important, uh, or AI, sorry, a more and more important part of how. Um, how firms operate their business. And I, I think it's in operations. It's in you know uh, uh, tooling for advisors. It's in chatbots for the clients. Um, so so you know it's in multiple different ways that uh, uh, artificial intelligence technologies, machine learning are going to become important parts of how we operate. Uh, yeah, I absolutely see that happening. For sure, you know one one layer beyond that as well that we're we're starting to hear more about is behavioral science, because um, you know AI is really about data science. You know, it's about uh, crunching crunching the data, but behavioral science is really about understanding what your client's saying to you, and so it's taking CFR sort of to the next level, which is to say, is the client actually aware of what they're saying? Are they saying the truth to you? And are you able to actually think about uh, uh, how you how you uh, add a series of additional questions to drag out the right answer uh, from them? Um, so it's an interesting uh, next next level that some of the firms are starting to think about more carefully. Yeah, I've uh, I've been seeing personality assessments a lot more, mm-hmm. and I think that's related to it. So you know, knowing which of your clients are you know just naturally more attuned to aggressiveness versus, you know, being more conservative or balanced and then being able to derive insights for those particular clients. So if, again, if the rocket, if the markets are very rocky and a lot of volatility occurring, then your conservative clients are the ones that are, that will tend to be a bit more nervous. And so perhaps those are the ones that you reach out to. So having a, you know, a, a program or an application that brings that information to you as surfaces for you so that you can easily make uh, the interactions that you need to, to come for those clients would be very helpful. And again, help strengthen those relationships. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that, that again, that's, it's part of what, uh, I think you're right. I think some of these tools are the things that allow you to get the, the real insights into your client's way of operating. Um, and help uh, make the right decisions on their behalf. Now, you know, ultimately, it's a client's decision, but helping them by asking them more questions uh, uh, get to the get to a, a real understanding of their underlying values when it comes to financial risk. Uh, that's that's a critical part of the advisor's job. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that uh, I I totally agree with that. Now. Uh, we've been speaking a lot about wealth because there's so much here, mm-hmm. but you also manage insurance. Yeah, for sure. So I want to hear a bit about that. Yeah, you know, the insurance business has been a really fantastic business for us for uh, for uh, a very uh, very long time. The uh, the the you know we've we've actually been in the data business and insurance for almost thirty years. Uh, so it's kind of a you know, it's a, it's 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 something that we've been just a part of the fabric of the industry for such a, a long, long time. And you know what we do is we gather uh, uh, data from all of the insurers about every accident, every claim, every uh, missed payment, uh, you know, uh, license data, 
uh, under underwriting data, uh, uh, and and we have that data all available uh, for our clients at the point of underwriting and at the point of claim, so that um, you know when when someone's uh, making a claim, for example, you have all of the information about uh, how they operate, uh, what they've done, uh, you know, uh, how many accidents they've had. Um, you know, any uh, previous accidents the vehicle has had, so on and so forth. So all of that data is available and it's very transparent and it makes for a, a much more fluid industry. Um, and so we're very proud of our role that we played uh, over the last 30 years in making, making that happen. That's really interesting. We're essentially like a data repository for the insurance industry. That's correct. In the country. That's exactly what we do. So, and, you know, we operate on behalf of pretty much every insurer in the country. Uh, and provide that data to them again at the point of underwriting. So if, you know they know how many tickets you've had. They know if you've ever had a claim before. They know if you've ever missed a payment to another insurer before. Uh, all of that information is something that they have. Um, so when you're filling out your forms, don't lie because because <laughs> uh, they know. Uh, so already. Yeah. Oh wow! So it, it's really interesting you say that because I've been looking into insurance lately in particular as it relates to blockchain. Because mm-hmm. blockchain is something that, uh, personally, I've been very fascinated by the technology. I feel like it has a lot of applicability, but sometimes it it just it gets meshed in with cryptos and some other stuff earlier okay. on in its life, and it, it tends to kind of devalue it a bit because of its interactions with these other um, things. But I, I feel like the that technology itself has a lot of applicability. Um, you know, it's just it's just a ledger that's immutable. Yeah. It has a lot of integrity, which mm-hmm. makes it valuable. Um, and I've seen that it's been used, uh, again, for different things, such as subrogation uh, in the U.S. It's also been used to help prevent fraud, so mm-hmm. double dipping. Yep. Um, I'm, I'm curious, do you see any worthwhile cases in the Canadian marketplace for it? Are there any oh, that sure. you've been I mean, investigating? I think, I think uh, you know the promise of the distributed ledger has always been a shared set of data across multiple entities, right? So, um, and 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 full security at the same time, you know. So it's a very powerful uh, capability, and you can imagine situations like, uh, you know, like uh, for for example, we have uh, you know we have organizations like FundServe that connect sellers of funds and buyers of funds. But if the sellers and buyers of funds use the same database, they wouldn't need an intermediary at all, right? So it could all be done in real time. So you can do away with the T plus two or T plus three uh, transaction time. So there's an amazing opportunity there in in that space. Similarly, insurance. The challenge with the blockchain has been, um, you know, up until very recently, the distributed ledger just wasn't fast enough to manage the transaction volumes that we were dealing with. Uh, so the technology has, is, is catching up, I think, with, uh, with the requirements of the industry. At that point, it's going to become super valuable. And you're right. I mean, I think a lot of um, you know, the, the distributed ledger or blockchain uh, construct has been wrapped around crypto. And you know, crypto has had its own heyday. Uh, uh, it feels like the shines come off crypto a little bit, <laughs> um, and that's probably a good thing because, you know, in my mind, crypto is is you know it's questionable fundamental value. Um, you know, because you know there, there is no means of production. There's no actual revenue. 
it's it's essentially it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an attempt to deliver a fiat currency with a government backing it, um, and so uh, you know there's value in that, and for sure that's why the the value of things like uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum and other 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 uh, cryptos have grown, but. Uh, but there's no fundamental value. There's actually no, there's nothing you can sell off. There's no assets. There's nothing underlying it. Right? So it's an interesting, um, and, and you see the impact of that, of course, when a down market happens. I think some of these uh, different uh, asset types are down 70, 80, 90% more. And of course, we've seen some exchanges go under completely um, uh, with some questionable. Uh, leadership as well, <laughs> yes. right? So, so it, you know, it's been an interesting time for sure. It, uh, yeah. it, no, definitely. I I think there's a lot of speculation in crypto. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say personally, I do see value in things like smart contracting, which is sure, what Ethereum came out with. Uh, I yeah. think there's applicability for that outside of cryptos. So yeah. it's really just taking this technology and applying it to more meaningful things than than just speculating on a cryptocurrency right. uh, I yeah, no, I totally agree with you I think the blockchain itself is an is an amazing uh, and 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 uh, amazing construct and a big part of the future and so we'll see distributed ledger technologies become the mainstay of how we're going to hold data how we're going to share data I think going forward and you know this will tie back into a client's ability to um, a client's ability to uh, make decisions about their data as well, right? Because we're going to see more and more uh, regulation around clients' rights to manage their data. Yeah. And of course, the blockchain uh, is a great way to implement those decisions, right? So, as well. No, I, I completely agree. And again, mm. the I, I just I see so much value in the blockchain, especially in insurance, uh, because I've been seeing it being implemented in some very interesting ways. Like there's a, a health insurance provider in the U.S., one of the largest ones, um, who's using who's they essentially created an app, and then the app generates a QR code that the their client takes and shows to different uh, doctor's offices and all of their information gets populated right then and there. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to worry about providing their insurance information or someone like their own personal manual information to different doctors because now it's all in this QR code sure. and it's just there for them and right. it makes their life easier. It's secure. Yep. Uh, they can also give access to it at, for a particular period of time. So it's not for, sure. you know, indefinite. Yeah, you think about the amount of money and effort that the that, that governments have put into having a just a just a shared health record uh, for their patients, um, and uh, again, as you say, the distributed ledger can solve that problem very rapidly. Um, so, so yeah, uh, I think uh, that's a big part of our future for sure, and uh, certainly we're investing in those technologies in a big way. Um, and we've we've uh, we've looked at it in the wealth domain uh, quite a bit. Uh, but we've actually had uh, implementations uh, in distributed ledger technology in some of our IP, like trade finance, uh, for many, many years. Uh, and, and we're at the, uh, one of the leaders in, in implementing that technology uh, and getting it into the market. So, so yeah, uh, 100% agree with you. I think that's an <laughs> important part of the future. Mm-hmm. I, definitely. I actually had uh, Lewis Bateman on 
a few episodes ago mm-hmm. speaking about blockchain and digital assets and he had it sounded like a very dystopian <laughs> worldview yeah. view of it all where we're all just going to live on the blockchain but i you know I, i do think there's again a lot of applicability and a lot of interesting things happening that'll streamline also help create security for everyone um so their blockchain has a bright future in my opinion mm-hmm. um now i do yeah, for, especially important when it comes to and this is where the cryptos become valuable and why people see them as part of the the future is this idea of sort of web 3.0 um the the you know the shift to metaverse um payment techniques being cross border uh so 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 managing that uh without transaction fees you know that's where the value in some of those uh, things become really valuable and i think it's going to happen um but will it become the way we live i'm not so sure <laughs> i certainly won't become the way i live uh you know I, i might be on it sometimes but you know i think that's true of uh, and 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 for sure the firms who are investing in that will have uh will have uh, you know huge opportunities because of that you know it's it's uh, a couple of hours of uh, five billion people a day would be uh would be a pretty amazing uh uh client say clientele right so um and this is where firms like meta and others are really uh are focusing and investing in that domain so absolutely yeah web web 3s all all the hype right now mm-hmm. um there was actually a gartner report that uh, came out recently saying that 75% of firms will have some type of interaction on the on web3 with their clients. Yeah. Um so I I thought that was very fascinating. Um now well, we've been we've been we built a marketplace now um, yeah. uh for our clients actually to 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 practice in if you will and it's kind of like the idea of having a wealth branch um in 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 the metaverse so that you can actually interact with your client avatar to avatar uh and uh, and and have a and have a you know face to face conversation in a domain so uh um so I, it's interesting you know and so it's a it's a it, i think that's going to be a big part of what's going to happen uh and we'll see that change uh but i still don't believe it's going to be the way we live our lives i think it's going to be <laughs> part of how we operate you know so I agree. I think there'll there'll be a balance that will be struck. Mm-hmm. Uh for sure. Um now as far as insurance goes, what were some of the big things that happened in insurance in 2022? Well, I mean the insurance domain is uh, is 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 a giant domain. I think the the insurance industry has got a couple of big changes going on. Um on the sort of life health uh, side of the insurance uh, business. There's a there's been a, a refocusing of those organizations towards wealth management, asset management, um, and you know part of the reason for that is they see the opportunity to grow their business and and deliver great value to their clients by having a combined insurance, health, and wealth uh, or or or, or uh, capability across uh, for their clients and deliver an end to end service. So I think that's a big deal in in, in that side of the business. On the PNC insurance side of the business, uh, you know, I think uh, there's there's uh, you know there's continued evolution in the way they operate. Um, the but in general, I would say that it's sort of been fairly steady. Of course, you know, the, the fact that the chip market uh, has been uh, 
uh, a little behind from a supply chain perspective, has limited the number of vehicles that were sold, and therefore the, the amount of insurance that was uh, that was requested. So we saw that uh, reflected in the transaction volumes we saw uh, as well. Um, so I'm sure that's had a, a slightly negative impact, but at the same time, the 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 number of claims is down, uh, which is interesting. And of course, with the boom market that we've had for the last few years, the, the industry had done very well. Of course, this year's probably the opposite. Uh, like all of us, we've all seen our assets evaporate a bit. Um, <clears throat> so, so yeah, it's a, you know, it's the insurance industry has been uh, undergoing quite a bit of change. I'd say from a from a digital transformation perspective, it's 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 about becoming more client centric um, and delivering a high, higher value and faster service to the clients. Um, and that covers every aspect of the business from uh, the underwriting process and the speed with which you underwrite, the the customer service side of the business, of course, the uh, uh, risk management, uh, and then ultimately, uh, you know, what you do when there is a claim and how you manage that with your clients and uh, deliver service through that. So, um, you know, I think uh, the firms have... Uh, made lots of good decisions on ways in which that they can deliver great service and uh, minimize their cost. Uh, and you see that in the form of uh, firms setting up uh, you know, major centers where you can bring your vehicle after an accident and they'll take care of all aspects of it right there, including repairs. Everything happens in this one facility. You know? oh, that's very um, cool. You know, so, so it's a great way to manage costs, but also deliver great service. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's, uh, so it's, that's been an interesting shift for some of the insurers as well. Now, you, uh, when earlier on you mentioned combining everything from health, wealth, essentially end to end can you uh, elaborate that a bit more on that like what sure. is what is happening there where they're now offering wealth services yeah i mean i think insurance has always been a part of uh of setting up uh, the right kind of financial plan for a client right um and so i think the insurers are realizing that they can operate outside of just insurance and and more and deliver that whole wealth experience as well um and of course, there are also the providers of all the health benefits that, that uh, most of us enjoy as well, you know, outside of our government plans, that is. So, um, so they're providing the, the whole uh, gambit of service to, to most of the clients. And, and uh, you know, the broader and more end-to-end they can provide that, the easier it is to attract clients to their, to their, to their business. So... Um, I think they're recognizing that and investing to make that happen. They also see the upside of the wealth business and the profitability that they can make from that. Um, so, so there's a you know there's an investment there. And you mentioned MFDA and IROC earlier, and the merger of MFDA and IROC that's certainly having uh, an impact on the way insurers are thinking about their future as wealth providers. So, right? Is there? Uh- are they building in-house or are there acquisitions and mergers occurring to provide these wealth services? I think both. Um, I think, you know, firms are, are, are there's some, there's some uh, acquisitions that are happening and certainly firms are, are, are continuing to rationalize. Um, we see that happening. But um, I think for a lot of these firms, they already have a sort of set of core services and they're investing to improve the tooling and the platform that underlies that service so that they can expand it and they can expand that organically. You know, 
by either uh, training their uh, insurance uh, advisors to become wealth advisors as well, which is very possible. We see that uh, in some areas. Or, or to have a, uh, a new uh, advisory team and, and, and probably advise their business using their network uh, to, to take advantage of uh, uh, you know, position proximity to clients. Right. Yeah. It seems like a, a bit of friendly competition for the wealth industry with insurance yeah. moving I mean, in. It's always been the way, though. Yeah. We've always seen firms come and get and rationalized. And I mean, this is certainly how the banks became uh, market leaders in, in their domains through acquisition. Um, and and so uh, I don't think it's new. I think it's, uh, it's just the next phase in the evolution of the business. And because the business has grown so much and the amount of assets have grown so much, there's more to go around as well. So I, I don't think there's a lot of firms who are suffering um, <laughs> uh, in this market, although this year has been a bit tougher than, than last year. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, it's it's interesting. I think with this shift to offering this end-to-end -end service, we've also seen big investments being put into client experiences by these yep. insurance firms, making sure that front end is pleasant and digitizing as much as they can to make things more efficient. Yeah, yeah no, for sure. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think uh, you know clients want to have access to their data, uh, and they want when they want to see it when, where uh, they want it, right? So um, and, you know, I think that's an important part of the service that you're offering now. And you know, I, you know, as we talked about earlier, the the digital tools that we have at home are very good and we're used to having access to data right away and we don't want to wait. Uh, so so uh, the, the client experience has to echo the kind of experience they have from other uh, other firms that, that, that they're, or other tools that they're used to using. Um, so that's meant a big investment, I think, for, for the industry. Um, the the other side of that is the advisor experience has had to improve dramatically as well because you don't want to be in a situation where the client has more data than the advisor. <laughs> uh, so, so, uh, so making sure both of those things happen has been, I think, a big challenge for the industry, and, and, uh, and certainly it's not done yet. Uh, a lot of firms are still investing heavily to make that happen, which is good for us because uh, it's the business we're in. Uh, and so, and so uh, that means that we're going to continue to grow and, and, and build our business, and certainly we're here to support the industry and, and are excited about the opportunity. So, Perfect. Well, that answers my next question, which was going to be, do we have what they're looking for in terms of tooling and platforms, yeah. applications? Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's an interesting question, you know, do we have what they're looking for? I mean, I think the industry is always evolving, right? So, and we have to always evolve as well. Uh, yeah. So if I look at, uh, you know, what, what the industry is looking for last year, I think, yes, we absolutely have it. Uh, what they're having next year, what they want next year, probably we have some work to do to get there, you know? So um, I think we're in, in a very good position uh, relative to our competition. I think we're probably the best of, uh, of, of the firms that we see out there. But uh, we could always be better, and I think the industry is always asking for more. So... Um, yeah, uh, you know the opportunity to 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 do the right thing is is there for for the firms and us. So. Yeah, well, I would say that that self awareness is actually what helps us because mm -hmm. we're aware that there are things we need to work on 
Sure. We need to improve to provide better experiences to our clients. Yeah. But, you know, whether that's insurance or wealth. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because we've seen a lot of the impact of fintechs on the market. You know, the, the, the nice thing about fintechs is that they usually uncover some very, very fine slice of, uh, of the industry that, uh, can, that can uh, be improved. But it's a very, it's usually a very, very thin sliver. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's a great idea, but unless it's part of a connective tissue that we talked about earlier, the platform, uh, doesn't have a lot of value, right? Uh, so, um, you know, this is what we've seen a lot of in the last few years, which is the fintechs, uh, pushing us and our clients to make, uh, improvements in the end to end process and doing it in a way that is part of the connective tissue. Uh, so, so it's, it is exciting times for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, one of the big pushes um, is going to be open banking because mm-hmm. uh, this year in 2023, and I believe in the fall is when we'll finally get uh, read-only access. So it's a step towards having open banking and mm-hmm. that will have an impact on obviously the entire financial industry. Yep. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on open banking <clears throat> and do you feel that the industry is adequately prepared or what needs to be done to get to that phase, at least yeah. for the initial process? Yeah, for sure. You know, I think um, you know, most of the, the, the financial institutions we deal with have been investing in open banking at some level for quite some time, but it's been around the edges. You know, it's not in the core of their business. Uh, and I think for most of the senior executives, they're not really even aware of the implications of it. Um, we, what we see in Europe is that they've, you know, they've gone ahead and 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 forced in open banking through top-down regulation, um, and you know it's it's allowed uh, the financial institutions to rethink their business model in some ways, right? So they can uh, decide what kind of organization they want to be, um, uh, and and you can imagine a situation where a bank is providing underlying banking services to multiple different uh, uh, other financial institutions who are operating as distributors only. Um, so that that kind of uh, uh, rethink hasn't happened here at all yet. Um, uh, there are people who have you know who are imagining that future uh, and and starting to prepare for it. I think. Um, but they don't, uh, you know, we don't, we don't yet have the tooling in place to make it happen because the regulation hasn't forced the institutions to, to make change. So I think this, uh, this fall will be a big shift for, uh, for us. And as we get, uh, into, uh, into, uh, you know, even broader open banking, um, here you're going to see that the industry is going to have to react, uh, and make decisions about, um, what's the role of each of the financial institutions that are playing in it? Um, you know, this is, it's an interesting topic because it really comes down to data and ownership of data, right? And the, and the concept here is that the, the, the client owns their data um, and they have the right to have their data shared with who they want to have it shared with and they have the right to take that uh, access away at any time as well. So, um, you know, managing that uh, is not so easy for an industry that, that doesn't have uh, uh, all of that data connected between different points. 
And so, you know, there are firms, organizations, you know, firms, organizations like FDX who've been there to help um, prepare all these firms with a set of standards that they can use for sharing the data. Um, I think most of the financial institutions have spent money investing, building uh, APIs to make that happen. Um, but they don't have them really connected into the into the life breath of, the, of their organizations yet. And there's a very major set of work to be done, first off, to conceptualize how you're going to use it, and then to actually implement it. So. Right. Well, it's really interesting because in Canada, we are fortunate in the sense that we are able to learn from the lessons of other nations, such mm -hmm. as you know Australia, Europe. Yep. They've introduced it much more quickly than we did. So... We have that to our advantage, but at the same time, of course, we're gonna. There's gonna be pain points and hurdles that we have to get through ourselves. Yeah. Um, and it, I, when it comes to tooling, do you feel that we have the correct tools? Because I would think that again, perhaps because this has already been existence in other places, we'd be able to get similar tools to them, or even uh, get the tools from cross borders. Um, I don't think everything has to be built in-house in Canada as long as there's proper compliance yeah. and regulation behind it. So this is for open banking generally, you think? Uh, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, I'm not, you know I, I, I mean, fundamentally open banking is about sharing data. Right. And um, giving uh, people the, the, the choice to share it and unshare it uh, and being able to prove that you've given them that choice, right? So... Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure that that's so much about. Um, I'm not sure it's so much about uh, uh, tooling because uh, I think you know the, the technology to do it is not complicated, honestly, and 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 we have standards that we share and we share them across North America. Um, by the way, so when I talk about FDX, it's a North American organization. So, um, <clears throat> I you know I think. Really, it's about uh, uh, you know defining what you want to do with with that capability is is the more important question, the more difficult question. Um, how are we going to implement it? Uh, right. And and uh, you know it's not just about giving clients that access. It's about okay, well, how are we going to take advantage of that? What's that going to mean for us? You know, can a fintech now provide banking services? And do it in a in a way that's you know that's disruptive to our business. Um, you know, and the answer is yes, they can. Uh, and then, okay, well, how are you going to respond to that as a financial institution? And uh, and uh, you know, what's your role in that? Right. You know, so so I, I, you know, it's a, those are big questions uh, for an organization that's run in a fairly consistent way for a very long time. Right. So it's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, one well, one of the things about the, at least the wealth industry in Canada is that we're very uh, slow to change. Mm -hmm. it, it takes a while. So, yeah. but I I feel that that's changed as we become more digital. They've had no choice but to adopt, um, and so now there's there's more accelerated changes. Um, yeah. And and as far as open banking goes, again, it's something that clients are going to demand. Like if one firm can do something and they know they can do it then they're going to ask why their firm can't do it. So it'll sort of be um, kind of like a dominoes effect where once one goes down, the rest of are going to have to follow as well. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think what we've seen in Europe is that most firms have made decisions about how to make sure that they they are providing uh, a set of capabilities to clients that that uh, that uh, allows them to conform to the regulations, but also take advantage of the opportunity. Um, and there are lots of uh, interesting, I would call them, um, uh, uh, sort of groups, for groups of firms who have come together to offer specific sets of services. So, so for example, there's a, there's a financial institution that just does loans and another one that just does deposit-taking and checking accounts. And and they have a third organization that delivers that service to a client as as if it's one financial institution. But the reality is under, underlying there are multiple institutions delivering the service. We've seen that in the wealth business for a long time. Um, and we've always had uh, uh, correspondent uh, clearing, uh, and in the U.S. market especially, we have uh, sort of RIAs who are supported by the turnkey asset managers, the TAMP uh, type uh, uh, services, uh, and with multiple custodians, custodians like Schwab and Fidelity and, and others. So, so you know, I think uh, for the wealth industry, you know, we've already had to deal with these challenges. Uh, for the banking industry, you know, this is new uh, and, and will be, I think, tougher uh, uh, change. So um, in a way, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's going to allow us to think in the wealth industry about aggregation um, in, in a different way. And, you know, we've, we've managed aggregation uh, with our clients, that aggregation, uh, through screen scraping and, and, and uh there's a few firms that, that manage it uh, reasonably well. But going forward, I think all firms will have to think about this. And, uh, you know, for a client, they're going to want to know what their, their their financial situation is and their, their money will be in different institutions. So they're going to want to see that in one place. And that one place brings a big opportunity for someone to aggregate. Um and you know the risk, of course, is that you know that aggregator might be Apple or <laughs> Google or uh, you know or Amazon. And you know at that point, then uh, the relationship between the firm and the client is intermediated by uh, a major player. And what's interesting for for young people, generally speaking, they have more brand trust and loyalty for. Uh, brands like Amazon, uh, Apple, and Amazon than they do for the the banks that they deal with. So, so it's it, you know, it's uh, I think the short term risk is not the thing that uh, firms have to really worry about. It's what's going to happen over the next ten years, um, and what's it going to mean for us as a financial institution in that period of time. Right. Well, mm. part of it again will come back to compliance and what the even the aggregator is allowed to do and. Because, I mean, if they have all the data, which Google pretty much knows everything about me, if I'm being honest, (laughs) there isn't much that they're missing. But again, like, are they going to be allowed to just package that data and ship it off to whoever they want? Or will there be very strict regulations around it? Like, I think about the GDPR regulations in Europe now. um, And, you know, all the warnings that Google has to provide. So if anyone out there ever uses VPN and they decide to use a European server, they'll see that if they go to Google... There's this whole plethora of disclaimers that comes up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, uh, and but again, uh, the, the underlying principle behind GDPR and open banking in general is that you, as a client, own the data. 
It's your data. Right. So if it's my data, I can share it with Google or Apple. It's up to me. Um, and so, yes, they have to conform as well. And they have to prove that I've given them that access. But once they've proven that, then then they can provide those services. So, yeah, no, yeah, I I I uh, I think it's a it's an interesting time uh, ahead of us, uh, and, and you know we're going to see more and more uh, financial services uh, delivered through some of these institutions like Apple and Google and others, um, uh, without them having to invest to build the underlying uh, capabilities, right? Uh, without them having to have major platforms uh, that are OSFI compliant to do savings accounts or 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 uh, or or lending for that matter. Yeah, it's really interesting. Well, this has been a great chat. Before mm-hmm. we wrap up, what do you envision for twenty twenty three? Yeah, so 2023 is, uh, is, is, uh, you know, I think it's going to be, it's already been an interesting year. We've already seen the markets, uh, uh, go through a pretty uh, heavy gyration through 22 and into 23. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's sort of uh, going to continue. There's, you know, obviously the risk of recession and there's a lot of conversations about, uh, what that means. Um, uh, but at the same time, you know, there's also uh, some optimists out there, uh, including you know the Secretary of the Treasury of the U.S. and others, who believe that you know maybe that recession is not inevitable, and uh, maybe we can uh, hold firm on on uh, and get under control interest rates uh, and inflation, of course, uh, so inflation and thus interest rates as well. So that would be a that would be a great plus for us if that started to turn the corner in 2023, and I think for the markets that would mean a very uh, major upswing. Um, so I think that there's there's optimism uh, that I have, generally speaking. For us as a business, I think there's a ton going on. Uh, you know, we we uh, you know we didn't talk much about the CI uh, uh, deal that we signed, but I think that's an exciting uh, shift for us as a business. We've I got a new partner with CI. Uh, we, uh, you know, we we ended up with a new product and new set of capabilities that we can deliver to the market more broadly in in a set of uh, transfer agency operations and uh, contact center capabilities, as well as uh, the platform itself. So pretty exciting uh, um, set of capabilities, and we did a similar contract with IGM and have a, a similar set of capabilities that came out of that contract as well. So. Huge amount of opportunity for us in that space to, to grow our business and you know continue to provide great service for our clients. We talked about financial planning. I think that's going to be something that we'll announce shortly as a as a major uh, play in financial planning and uh, and for us that means uh, uh, being able to add a new service to our digital wealth platform um, and really uh, deliver on that end to end journey. Uh, um, so, which, which of course requires that platform as the sort of core of it. Uh, so, the additional financial planning makes it extremely powerful, I think, uh, and and uh, you know really beyond what's available in the market today. Um, and then uh, you know we've got great opportunity insurance. We're looking at uh, some very interesting uh, new uh, data capabilities that we're going to deliver to the market. Um, I can't talk much about them, honestly. <laughs> uh, so I have to, I have to be careful here. But uh, I think there's a huge opportunity for us in the insurance uh, business, and and 
the data team that we have is very focused on delivering a set of great capabilities into the market. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, in the institutional investing side, um, the, the the fund accounting business is is and and the uh, uh, positioning as a sort of investor book of record for institutional firms is something that we're really focused on. Um, how do we uh, how do we provide uh, you know the, a, a true uh, full coverage in that marketplace is one of the parts of that. Uh, how do we make sure we do that in a very modern way uh, that delivers efficiency for those firms so that they can uh, reduce the cost of operating and uh, and uh, still are able to track and manage all the assets that they uh, that they have. Uh, uh, so. So very, uh, you know, very big year for us ahead. Uh, lots of work to be done, uh, and lots of opportunity with our clients. So, so that's 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 always exciting. Absolutely, yeah. It seems like there's a lot mm -hmm. to be uh, to be um, done in 2023. And as for the CI deal, uh, not to worry. We have an entire episode that will oh, be uh, coming up. Uh, the next episode, actually, with Tej and Len Brooks, where we will discuss the CI deal and uh, mm. what that means and how we're transforming the industry, essentially. Yeah, I think that's a very important partnership for us. And I think, you know, the partnership word is one I don't use lightly. I think it's a really important uh, important position that we took together um, uh, as as two firms looking at how we can improve upon not only the efficiency of the operations, but also give value to the members uh, uh, that were delivering that service. So yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a it, that's a great one. I'm, I'm glad you're having that. We'll chat next. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank mm -hmm. you, Jamie, for chatting with me. You, this has been a very insightful conversation. Okay. Um, and now for a bit of housekeeping, if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to share, like, and subscribe um, and leave us your comments. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at the next one. Thank you.